everybody. Welcome to another podcast of Sustain Our Software, SOS. We are here to help people understand and learn and grow open source software through finding out different ways to make it sustainable. Today with on our panel, we have Richard Litauer. How's it going? We have John Schlinkert. Hey, everybody. And I'm Eric Berry. And today our special guest is Mady Medjwi. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. Hi, Eric. Hi, Richard. Hi, John. That's nice to meet you. So for our listeners, Mady is a steering committee member of The Maintainers. I think it's themaintainers.org. Yeah. Founder of OWASP.io, which was an open core company and API Days conferences. And he is the EU Commission 2020 expert on open data and open APIs, co-author of the O'Reilly book, Continuous API Management. And finally, the creator of the maintainers contract and alias protocol. You've been busy. I've been busy there, yeah. I mean, explaining it like that, that sounds like a big list, but uh, no, it's uh, continuous work, yeah. Yeah, trying to uh, contribute to, to the community, yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your background and, and what led you to this point. I'm, a, I'm an engineer, I have a background engineer, but let's say uh, I focus a little bit more on, let's say, the, the impact of software, right? So I try to build companies, I try to build conferences, and now I'm trying to build new, let's say, contract, new laws to enable more people to be enabled by software, right? So... Uh, that's it. And in 2010, I, I built a. I wanted to make an API of API company, right? I thought we have too many APIs, too many designs. We need to get one into, into one. We pivoted into OAuthIO, which is a, a unified, let's say, authorization platform for every OAuth protocol out there. Uh, that's been acquired in 2017. But let's say we were building the company from 2011, from 2017. We've seen that many, many companies didn't get the impact of software, right? So this is why we built this conference, API Days. Mostly talking first about APIs, but now we talk about also backend Kubernetes. We talk about high performance, you know, uh, Kafka service meshes. So, so we talk about all this, all this stuff. And now in our main event, it's a three thousand people event in in Paris. We have nine events worldwide. Uh, the second day is about sustainable software. The second full second day is about sustainable software. Technically, software that works. Economically, software that that has a, a return on, in, on investment is superior to one. Socially sustainable, where humans is still at the core, and environmentally. And we have challenges where people take software, re- environmentally refactor them, right, and present that on stage. So, so yeah. So our conference now have a, this software, sustainable software track. So this is a little bit of my background. And since I've sold the company, European Commission, some business schools try to have me uh, explain the, this impact for software of software, IT for business, IT for society stuff. So yeah, this is why I've been involved the last two years on the building new, new things on the intelligence side. Yeah. So one of the reasons we brought you on is you attended Sustain Summit last year and you came with a very unique background and viewpoint on trademark contracts. I'd love to hear more about that. What does that mean and why is that important for the open source community? So uh, first, the event was was great. Spend one day with uh, the, the right people were there, right? And when you do events, this is what you want to do. Like you can have more people, but the right people is is the more important. So so yeah, that that was great for that and really insightful discussions. But let's say everybody here was was able to see that making open source sustainable on all these aspects of sustainability, right, is really hard. And economical sustainability is has been a debate over the last, I think, since the beginning of open source, right. <laughs> So that, that has been a, a big debate. Do you prefer licenses? Do you prefer support? Do you prefer, let's say, do you consider you should not make money with open source, right? That's also a, a big part of you in the community. But let's say that 
I have an entrepreneur background. And so I've seen companies like Tidelift, right? Raising money, delivering value for people using open source and sharing that value with people maintaining open source, right? And so with my friend entrepreneurs in, in, in open source, let's say we say, look, there, there, sh- there should be something. There should be some value that open source projects can still capture for maintaining, just maintaining the project. They will not make me billions, but at least to maintain the project. You've seen this uh, curl project that is just maintained by one person and that used by dozens of millions of developers. All these projects, we've seen the, uh, also the debates with, you know, Redis Labs changing license, MongoDB changing license, Cockroach Lab changing license, Confiant changing license, right? To something that was really confusing in an open source world, right? You know, in the late 90s, we, we had this open source word like uh, being able to be understood by everybody. So we said, this is open source, right? This is open source software, Libre software, right? And now the terminology of open source is really challenged by you know, the SaaS platforms and a new subscriptions model. And so, yeah, so we said there should be something. And we, we checked and we see that, okay, it seems that when you are open source, the, the intelligence is free, right? The intelligence, the code, the copyright is totally free in most of the, like, say, copyleft license or copy center license, right? Whatever GPL or MIT. But the, there is something that actually a lot of projects a lot of uh, IT consulting or vendors use that's still owned by the project that could be a, a way for project to have to have a, a fair part of what they deliver and it's the trademark of the project, right? So as I would say, the intelligence of the project is free because of the license, but the swag of the project is used today by many companies, right? To try to sell software and then never get back, right? with value or contribute back for the people maintaining the project, maintaining the governance, right? And showing the path, making everybody trust the project in the future, right? If I fork a project tomorrow, if I fork, I don't know, uh, whatever, Kubernetes, nobody will trust me because I don't represent a trustworthy, let's say, path, right? So the name of the project, the brand of the project, represent the community, represent the trust on the future of a project, and that's, in our world, you know, the business were represented by the trademark goodwill, right? So we say, look, it seems that we can keep the code free as open source initiative definition, free software foundation definition, right? We can keep the code open source, but you can still ask people who get a lot of value on their business to contribute back with a trademark contract, trademark fee, to be able to maintain the software in a way that's sustainable for everybody. Right? So this is where all it comes from. And so we've worked with uh, many lawyers in, that was uh, at SustainOSS and also o- other lawyers from various companies to start a maintenance contract, a contract that actually just explain how the trademark guidelines should be used that, that most of the projects have. But now these trademark guidelines have a counterpart, which is a financial counterpart, just to say, if you use my software, sell my software, it's free and you can do anything you want. If you use my trademark asset goodwill in a commercial way, if you put that you are the best, uh, the best SaaS platform for my open source distribution or open source software, if you use that, if you put my logo everywhere in a OSCON conference or open source summit conference, like you should give me back something because I'm maintaining the swag that you are using for your commercial thing. So this is a little bit of background. Yeah. So you brought up a lot of points, and I kind of want to dig down a little bit more. The first part that you said, which I found very interesting, is that the open source terminology is becoming more convoluted. I agree with that, but it's also, I was wondering if you can elaborate maybe on more define what that means. Like, for example, as you said, when when all of these companies started changing their licensing, 
that did tend to cause a lot of confusion. Can you explain that a little bit and maybe what that terminology mud is that we're trying to sift through? Uh, yeah, of course. So let's say in the late 90s, people be- were beginning to completely multiply licenses. There was a license pro- proliferation where people were used to say, I don't want my software to be used in the military. I don't want my software to be used in the, in the porn industry. I don't want my software to be used by this country or this country, right? And that was beginning to be, to be like not sustainable for people to understand, right? Licensing is something really difficult, right, to, to understand with all these different uh, appreciations. So at the time we said, okay, there is one definition that we should agree and libre software, open source software, free software, we will all gather that because you know, the term open source was just having the source being able to be viewed, not to be free as freedom. But now after we said, okay, we will gather around one term, right? But now, so we've, we've lived like 15 years with that. That was, that was fine. But because of the SaaS era, right? Because of Amazon, because of a lot of company infrastructure as a service delivering, uh, let's say, uh, open source software distribution on their platform, right? And being able just to use the software and get the money, not, never retributing back to the project at least financially, right? Uh, so yeah, so many projects changed their license completely in licenses that were, let's say, not open source at the open source definition, but still open in many ways, right? But that was not the original definition, right? The if definition we all agreed on that was safe for everybody to understand, right? And if you know a little bit about economics, but when there is confusion on the market, everybody loses, right? Uh, market for lemons, Aberkoff, Stiglitz, Spencer, right? they get the Nobel Prize of Economics. When there is confusion on a market, everybody loses. So how to have this back, right, uh, is important for, for open source. So some projects have been doing really good buzz, bad buzz, right? <laughs> some projects change the license without a lot of people knowing, like Confluent, right, where to a Confluent license where you can do anything uh, without, but, but no SaaS. Right? You cannot do SaaS, right? So that's not open source. You, can, you, can, you should be able to use the software and redistribute, redistribute it any way you want, right? There's a Crocoach Lab license where they're now with a community license where they have a more commercial license, right? Uh, Redis Labs with the Commons Clause, which is we have some uh, interdictions to use in different ways. So all these projects begin to restrict the open source usage, right? And they had a really great community and, and they had uh, compelling arguments. They were saying, a lot of people are making hundreds of millions on top of us. We don't see anything. We have to maintain the core ourselves. It's not fair. They should contribute back. And the other on the other side say, yes, but this is open source, right? We use your software. We make you pull requests. You were enabled by open source to be like, to scale and to be uh, used by a lot of people because you were open source. So you just have the rewards of your first intent. If you were proper proprietary software, you would have never get this community. So, so yeah, all these debates and MongoDB also changed the license to something more open source, <laughs> And you have to open source everything, even the, the server. You have to open source your whole stack if you use MongoDB, right? It's another way to defend yourself. That has not been accepted yet. But yeah, so, and this brings a lot of confusion. Are you server-side public license? Are you commons close license, Cockroach Lab license, Confluent license? And sometimes they give their own name to the license, right? And that brings a lot of confusion. So we are in favor of keeping open source as a common definition, so everybody wins on top of that, but new ways to monetize for people who want to monetize directly with IP, right? And the trademark contract is in that context, right? But it's on top of license, it's not a new license. This is why we call it a trademark contract, not a trademark license, to not, to not bring more confusion, right? 
it was called trademark license at the beginning, but from all the interviews we've made, people say, no, 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 it's on top of the license. It's complementary to any license, right? Call it contract, call it contract. So, so yeah, but this confusion is, is dangerous. This confusion is dangerous for the whole market, for everybody. And every project begin to protect its own self with a specific license and everybody's losing. So let's, let's avoid that. And this is why we are in favor of keeping, let's say, open source term, right? Libre software or uh, a free software, but find other ways on top of that for project to monetize. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, maybe I have, I have a question for you. Yeah, it makes, makes sense to me. I think I maintain a number of different software projects and I've had many discussions over the years about trademarks and copyrights and we've struggled a lot with, you know, we, we tried different licenses in the beginning actually and no matter what license we used, we had people basically just taking our code and republishing it under a different name and people don't care. They, they don't seem to care what your license is. And, and on the other side of it, at least that's my opinion, it, it, that's my observation. And on the other side of it, there's also a lot of shaming against like basically protecting your license, meaning anytime somebody does steal code and somebody gets called out for it, the entire community seems to rally, rally around the person who stole the code to defend them. And say that, for example, you know, that left, left pad debacle, you know, we haven't heard enough of that. But at the heart of it, people seem to forget that the guy stole somebody. I think it was left pad. He, was, he took somebody's trademark. They asked him to rename his project. He said no and unpublished his code. And at the end of the day, everybody supported his, his decision. So it seems to me that there's a real, con, like an inverse effect when you try to protect your project. You have to do so in a way where, you know, you're just kind of like asking everybody, please respect this. But have you observed any any um, pushback or any kind of balance, I guess, either a way to, you know, a way to implement a system that benefits both sides in a way that doesn't discourage users and is also respected by people who, who might be inclined to otherwise steal your code or, or republish your code under a different name? And I, I hope this doesn't sound too too negative, but Anytime this copyright and, and trademark issue comes up, I think a lot of people think similar things, that, that this is a very nuanced and layered, layered issue that doesn't have an easy answer. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it has a, never an easy answer, but uh, this, is where, uh, this is where it's interesting to, uh, to search, right? So first, a, a number from GitHub, from what I remember, only 17%, 17% of GitHub projects have a license, right? Really? So have a, yeah. So that was shared during System OSS, right? Uh, that was a number share. There, there are, of course, millions of projects, right? So, but just to say, many, many developers still don't even think to put a, a license on their, on their repo because they're working on it, you know, just to try or do, to deliver something. And yeah, so that, that's a number. That's an, a number that is important to remember. Interestingly, I think I, 17% of GitHub projects are mine. So I think those are my... No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> So, and actually, if you don't have a license, it's considered like a, a copyright from the from the author, right? It's not like it's not public domain, right? So actually, there eighty three percent are theirs. <laughs> it's it's not it's not yours. So so it's important to publish a license because until, until that, everybody who uses you is like in a way that's counterfeiting your software. So yeah, please put a license so people know, right? So that's important. On the other side, yeah, the trademark, the copyright. There is always again this this is this big split in an open source community. People who who think that open source should always be free as freedom and free as free beer, right? And, you know, that's their core mindset and we have to respect that, right? And there's the people who say, look, 
Yes, but it's not sustainable, right? It's sustainable in some ways for some projects, international, worldwide projects, right? So that's fine. But for the large majority of projects, there is an economical sustainability that needs to be understood. And, and for this project, yeah, the discussion needs to happen. And there is sometimes some backlash, right? It's true. But yeah, but let's say we, we think copyright is less understood than trademark, right? Even from the business, you know, copyright is something that is like a nuclear radioactive for companies, right? If you use a, a, a project with a, another copyright that is not valid by a company, like it's something like extru- that, that can lead to millions or billions of dollars of fees, right? Trademark is a little bit more known by businesses. Marketers understand trademark. They don't understand copyright. Salespeople understand trademark more than copyright, right? So it's a right that is a little bit more known in the community. So this is why we, we tackle that. But, but uh, I, I agree with you, this... Software should be free as freedom and not free beer, I like open source and, and free. And people who think there should be an economical, let's say, uh, a match between people maintaining, at least maintaining, and people using the software should be there. Why I understand with people say software should be, should be free is more on the copyright side. On the copyright side, software should be free to use because that was your first intent at the beginning, right? That was your first intent. But Companies should not capture too much value, right? Capture too much value with copyright. You know, with proprietary software, you capture value on the copyright and the trademark. You capture value everywhere, right? And so you can be, you can make billions not working anymore. This is what we we're trying to, to, to deliver is something where you just give back fees, not to make the, the creators of the project rich, right? So it's not, the, it's not a full captation of value not to make the creators, but to sustain the maintainers. So it's, it's completely different. It's re- uh, rewarding the work, not, so the, one, not the, the IP. One of the things that I think really complicates this issue, though, and, and makes it much more nuanced, in my opinion, is that we have this double-edged sword of, do I create my software on top of other software packages, or do I create it entirely from scratch, right? And so take a scenario where you want to be compensated, or you think it'd be right for people to compensate you for the work that you've done, if they're advertising your project and they're, they're getting some kind of uh, marketing value out of the name that you've created. Now, there's a couple scenarios. Should they also give props? And I'm not saying they should or shouldn't, but should they also give props to the long list of other projects that you built that project on? You know, or could this kind of scenario, meaning if we really pushed for people to do this, I, I think people already want that to happen. But if we started making this more of an issue, you know, is it going to encourage people to not use dependencies as much? I know there's a lot of controversy about dependencies in the first place, but it, meaning we, we see projects basically put, you know, they'll list dependency free as a feature or as an advantage, which every time I see that, I think to myself, so they basically copied a bunch of other people's code and didn't give any attribution. That's the first thing that comes to my mind is that's not a feature. That's not an attribute, in my opinion. That's not an advantage. It means that you have a ton of edge cases waiting to just explode. But so I guess, you know, why I'm going through this is that I'm trying to point out, I think that this is a much more nuanced issue. If you're building software completely from scratch and you're not using dependency, odds are you're naive. And if you're using other people's software, now you're creating a scenario where, so if we expect everybody in the world to give us props and list us on their website, do they list us and all of our dependents or is it enough to just list us? I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Where does it stop? Yeah, so uh, you're totally right. But let's say, as we want to avoid confusion in, tr- in licenses, right, the origin of a trademark is to avoid confusion, 
This is why we have trademark, uh, copyright, sorry. Uh, no, sorry. It's why we have trademark, even me, I make confusion sometimes. Yeah, it sounds, like, it sounds like we have some confusion right now. Yeah. yeah. I'm, just, yeah. I'm just, just messing yeah. up. <laughs> no, no, you're right. No, so trademark is here to avoid confusion. You know, to say, oh, this brand represents this company, represents this project, represents this whatever uh, philosophy, right? And so when you don't have time to know everything is, is, that everything is in a product, you trust, trust, the, trust the brand, right? You go to Whole Foods, you say that in most of the product, it's okay, right? Because it's Whole Foods brand behind that, right? So trademark is to avoid confusion, is to say that if you don't have the time to check all ingredients, if we match with open source all dependencies, yeah, this is trust the brand, trust what we've done before, and, and it's okay, right? So that's the first important thing. About the dependencies, I often say that to sustain OSS, you need short-term value for people using it directly. And so you need the short-term economical value and you need a long-term ethical value, right? And the change will happen only if you match the two, right? Short-term, like as we say sometimes, end of the month, end of the world, right? You know, so short-term and long-term, right? And these dependencies topic is, is something that, that's, uh, that's highly important because if you say, I depend on like 300 packages mm-hmm. and so one of these packages can be a, a threat tomorrow because it's maintained by someone two hours a month, Right. This is why some people just try to have this dependency-free argument. Say, look, hey, we we maintain ourselves. Everything, everything is made is homemade. Everything is made at home. And this is where companies like Tidelift are saying, no, like we will give you the the dependency tree from all your dependencies, and if you fund it, we will strengthen every part of the dependency tree. Right. For this project, just 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 one last sentence. For this project, for dependencies, most of the time there is no let's say, brand around the project. There is no trademark goodwill. There is no swag, right, for dependencies. They're just used by another to be used by another. So model like Tidelift, where they're kind of syndicate of, of maintainers, right? They say, okay, you use a project that is maintained, that is dependent of three packages. Just give us a fee, monthly fee, and we will redistribute money amongst the package, right? The other part, which is not tackled yet, is projects who have a stronger community, a stronger swag, project that can have a logo, right? That can can have a logo that people reuse. And for these ones, which are dependent on many things, right? This is why we want to apply trademark because as you said, someone can just copy the software and keep the name and that will bring a lot of confusion. So what with this trademark contract, the only thing we say is that you copy the code, fine, it's free. It's it's made for that. It's made to be forkable. But because it's trademark, unfortunately, you have to give another name. This is the only thing we ask. So to avoid confusion, and if people trust your project more than mine, it's fine. They will pay the maintenance fee to your project because you will maintain a project that goes in the direction they want. So the maintenance fee, right? This what we call maintenance contract, just give insight of what people want to maintain, right? So you don't reward the creators, you reward the maintainers. You pay for what people maintain. You pay for work. You don't pay for equity. You don't pay for making people billionaires. You just pay people for work in the direction you want. Right. And so it's fine. It's fine if you fork and, and, and people, you pay the fee to you, the new project, because this is what people want to see to be maintained. Right. I'm fine with that. As long as we avoid confusion and trademark, we just say, look, you just need to find another name. Please find another name and another, another logo. Yeah, I see, I, see, I see what you're saying. I think um, I don't have any philosophical issues with anything that you're saying. I think one point of maybe disagreement is the, the model that Tidelift has and, and the impact that that might have on the community. And for example, earlier when you mentioned Whole Foods and, and people knowing Whole Foods and the brand behind it and so on and so forth, 
that just kind of exemplified the point I was making earlier. Anytime you say Whole Foods brand, effectively what they're doing is private labeling things that were successful from other suppliers. So they'll take the, the profit leaders, the best products on the market, and they basically relabel them with their own name and then put them on the shelves. To me, I, I see that as a huge problem in business today. You know, Amazon.com is doing the same thing. They private label everything. And so we have a ton of projects in the open source community that do this, especially well-funded projects. Recently, Microsoft just put out a, a new task runner that's literally like a clone of Gulp. It's almost, it's almost not different at all. They could have just done a pull request to Gulp, but they put out a competitor to it. And Tidelift, for example, is funding you know, things like Happy, which is, you know, Walmart put $2 million in the beginning into Happy. And mm-hmm. this is a project that's funded by a massive company that has a ton of, receives a ton of economic value and economic incentives to fund open source projects like this. And Tidelift's model really, really get, gravitates towards projects that are popular, that are at the very end of the, of the supply chain, so to speak. The types of projects you're mentioning that, that, are, that really need a trademark. Now, if we, if we look at the open source community the way that you would look at an economy, it, you mentioned economics, the open source software supply chain looks very much like the real world supply chain. You have a, a pyramid. And so at the bottom of, of the supply chain or the bottom of the, the open source software economic pyramid is just millions of projects that you know, don't even really have a brand, don't even have a reason to have a trademark yet. But I think if you're going to trademark something, you've got to start early. You can't slap it on later. So how do maintainers, if you start protecting your software and you, you want to apply trademarks or copyrights and things like that, and you want to achieve some of the things that you're talking about, when is the right time for a maintainer to start doing those things? When is the right time to start thinking about those things so that you can avoid some of the negative aspects of it and get your project to become big and flourish and, and reap the, the benefits of those things later on. To paraphrase real quick, so those types of things won't matter if nobody, use, nobody uses your project in the first place. So how do you get people to use it and be protected all the way? Yeah, uh, you, you're asking the, the right questions there. So because in, in, in the open source definition, the software is free to use, redistribute, modify, right? Uh, so this... You can fork it anytime, right? You can fork it anytime to build your own. So you can already take the intelligence made by, by many people, right? And try to have your own path, your own maintenance path, right? Say, look, I will maintain in a way that, that in a direction that is different than the main project. And if you trust me, my work, my community, where I come from, you can trust me, right? And with the maintenance contract, you can have money on you more than the previous project because it's the same code at the beginning. And then we will take two different directions to be with different maintenance. So, so you will still be able to build on the top of what has been built with others. And any contributor, any people who made a, a contribution will be able to do that. Except the fact that if sometimes they have signed, like say, a contributor agreements, right? Which is, I think, really, really bad for a community. It means that sometimes you contribute for a project, right? I don't remember the name, CFA or something. The CLA, the contributor license. Yeah, CLA. Yeah, contributor license agreement. And this is really toxic, right? Because they say, oh, uh, you contribute. We may change the license and you agree with that, right? I, I make it I simplify it, but that, that's really the idea. So this, this really cuts the power of everybody inside the community to be able to have this protection by the license, to be able to fork the project later and continue in another direction. So we are totally against this contributor license agreement uh, because of that direction. So just an example with Docker and Rocket, Right? So Docker has been used by many people in the community, contributed by a lot of things. Docker raised money 
to sustain the, the core, right? Uh, but at one point, a rocket company was able to fork it to go in another direction. Say, oh, we don't believe in this direction. We can go in another. And they build a company. Right? They, build, they, they build a sustainable business. And that was fine. That was the deal at the beginning, right, uh, for that. So unless there is contributor license agreement, I'm totally fine by contributing to a project that I know I would be able to fork and give it in another direction. And maybe forking a part of the community to follow me, right, it's fine. But the thing is, when is the economical opportunity to live from my maintenance, to live from what I maintain? And this is why I want to say to maintainers, at some point, either you maintain for passion or for good, but you need to think about it when you want to have an economical match to your maintenance to, maintenance, to maintain more, right? And this is where you need to think about the tie-leaf subscription models or trademark enforced models or other models to keep the code free, but begin to monetize to capture just enough value to make it sustainable, right? Economically sustainable. Just an example, so many projects like that, but Bootstrap used by so many, so many millions of websites, like it's just five maintainers and they are not paid, right? They're not paid to do it. And this is why Bootstrap may not have, may have not the, the future it could have be, it could have uh, had because of that, right? Because Wasn't it funded by Twitter originally though? Wasn't, wasn't there a yeah. lot of money put into it? Yeah, let's say there. Uh, I talked to two bootstrap painters. And yeah, I, actually, me. I don't think it was. I think that Mark know. Otto did it on his own time with Jacob Thornton. They spent their own time on it. They just happened to work at Twitter. Wow. Yeah, yeah, they just happened, and so it has been completely captured and or rebranded like Twitter Bootstrap or or something like that. This is why the trademark is important to avoid confusion, right? So just just to. to I'm not sure that the trademark avoids confusion, though. I mean, this has been a primary thing you've been saying a lot here, which is great, and I'm glad that you really feel strongly about it. But to me, trademarks actually add confusion because it adds another thing I have to learn. And it also adds confusion in who's trademarking something. So I was around when Joyant owned the trademark for Node. And that was really confusing as to what they were doing with it. And then they decided to leave it and created the foundation. And there was a whole fork going on with IOJS. And I don't know all the details. I just remember it was so confusing. I actually couldn't learn all the details without spending five hours a day for a couple of weeks reading blog posts. And I was never willing to do that. I was just trying right now while you were talking to us to find some of that stuff. I found a good quote by Aaron Hammer, who I think was in charge of Happy for a while. I think trademarks should only be used to protect business interests, not to put someone in a benevolent position to decide what's in the best interest of a community. And this is something I'm, I'm kind of been thinking in the back of my head for this conversation. That's much more eloquent than I could have put it. But trademarks and licenses are really useful if you have the means to back them up. I could slap a, an MIT license on any piece of code I write. And someone could copy it. And if I don't have a lawyer who's willing to go out and write them a letter saying cease and desist or, you know, give me some money back, there's really no use for me having the license on it in the first place because they're only really useful if I have the power to deal with it. And a lot of open source projects that aren't large enough to have a SaaS product on top of it, that don't have enough maintainers to figure out how to get money coming in on a monthly basis, you know, the end of the month is the end of the world. Licenses and trademarks is just an extra level of education I have to have to understand that I won't be able to use anyway. So this is kind of where I'm confused in this conversation. Yep. Do you have any comments on that? Am, am I missing something? At least on the confusion side, yeah, trademarks are first made to avoid confusion, right? They are made for that. If it's not well understood, and I agree with you, sometimes it's not well understood, that can bring a little bit more confusion, but it's made. So when you buy Apple versus Samsung, right? Or when you Apple versus Google on the phone, like, you understand trademark. You say, oh, yeah. I know this is a closed ecosystem or it's more secure or it's whatever, right? Yes. It should be made for that. So the, the right trademark use is, is for that at the beginning, right? I think for the node thing, you were talking more about trademark guidelines more than the trademark contract fees. 
because trademark guidelines and another, it's how you oblige community or how you advise community to, to say your name and enforce the way you need to explain what's, what, the, what you're using. For example, Node, you don't say Node.js, you say Node and you write it this way. So this is a trademark guidelines, right? That's not the, the contract back, the fees back right up there. And so, yeah, I agree with you. And it costs money, right? Putting a trademark, yeah. USPTO, right? A trademark office with a lawyer, it's around like between three and $5,000, right? Yeah. Uh, it's 1000 for the brand, but three, 4000 for the lawyers. In Europe, it's like 3000 something like that. So, and most of the maintainers don't have that. So that's the role of the maintainers.org, the nonprofit, to gather money from sponsors, to gather lawyers, and to do that first step, right? Say, look, we will advance you the money. We will advance you the first three, the first five. And so you will have the, the right to be protected, right, uh, by this. So you can take the leap of faith to try to live from your maintenance, right? Because now there is a sustainable economic model that is possible. doesn't say that it will work for every project, but that is, that's possible. So this is why we try to syndicate in, in the nonprofit money from sponsors, from, from, uh, from GitHub and others to, to be able to have, to have that and to be the, to syndicate, I wouldn't say unionize, but let's say to represent, let's say to represent. Uh, so that's what themaintainers.org does. It's a nonprofit representing, representative body that helps to get trademarks for maintainers so that they can do the work they want to do without having to worry about trademarks. So this is what the maintainers in Europe are doing, okay. right? Because it was two maintainers project in the US by two researchers and in Europe by me and others. Yep. That's where we are uh, currently trying to merge right now. Okay. So the maintainers in Europe is doing that. We participate to an event called Fund the Code, right? We get money from sponsors, maintainers come, they present the project, people vote, and they give money to maintainers, right? It's symbolic, right? But actually that a lot of people say, oh, I just got like hey, 800 euros, like $1,000, say, oh my God, I can pay servers for like uh, two years and I have recognition and I met other maintainers who love my project. And so yeah, we want to have this recognition from, from maintainers. But yeah, the, the next step is really to add, to help project to to be able to have the right to to uh, to have a trademark and to try to monetize uh, uh, that way. Yeah, I'm going to redirect the conversation just a little bit back to more of a more of a broader view, and perhaps let's dig in a little bit into the maintainer contract itself. I read the maintainer contract, and it was interesting. So first, can we summarize roughly what the maintainer contract was specifically around the section that talks about the payment portion to the maintainers? And I'd like to find out exactly from the panel, maybe, how do you see this contract being accepted in corporate America? So first off, let's, let's dig in real quick. Under your obligation section of the contract, and I'm going to summarize here, but basically it says that if you use the trademark, then you're responsible to pay anywhere between 1% to 5% of whatever profit is made while using this trademark. Am I summarizing that correctly? Yes, so that's in the draft. So this is something that can be changed by the project in negotiation, and this is why some project needs to be represented. But yes, that's from 0.1 to to few percent of the value created, depending on the size of the software. Yeah, that's that's exactly that, yes. So while you're talking, you're talking about these maintainers getting paid. I want to know, like, what's the process of getting them paid? Is it, you know, it's like, it reminds me of that South Park episode with the gnomes, right? Where the gnomes are like collecting underpants and and there's a there's somewhere in the middle that's not quite defined, but at the very end, like everybody gets money, right? But in the middle, I'm not sure exactly how that works. Can you can you lay that out? 
Yeah, so, so for now, it's, again, the main goal of the maintainers uh, is also to reduce the cost and, redu- and, and increase the, increase, to reduce the level of uh, the barrier, to reduce the barrier for maintainers to be able to live from their own software, right? And so uh, the idea is to make them easy to set up a project, it's easy to set up a, an entity that is able to collect money and easy and lower the, the, the cost to, to, to put a trademark, right, on, on the project. So for now, we didn't have any, either they, make the, they, they build their own organization to be able to collect money or open collective, right? Either it's the nonprofit who takes that path, right? Who collect the money for them and redistribute the money for them, right? Yeah, that's how, how it is. So for now, it's mostly the nonprofit who manage the contract, who manage the, the discussions and, uh, and have negotiations uh, for, uh, to, to distribute back to, to maintainers. So with this, with this uh, contract, it seems like that, that percentage... I mean, as you said, it can vary, but the percentage seems really high to me. So to me, the, the, the really the only core benefits, the only core uh, projects that will benefit by this are, are those unicorn projects, right, that have built their name brand. And for example, John has so many projects and he's, he's, you know, both John and Richard are like holding up a large part of open source. However, none of those projects are very name brand. And so there's no way that companies might, want to use their logos one the logos probably don't exist but two people probably wouldn't care as much you know versus projects like mongo or redis or something like that so i'm going to ask you like who is this really benefiting from that point of view no i i'm not saying that it's not a problem that we need to to look at but do you believe that this will benefit the large sum of people or is this really like just been protecting the projects that seem to become unicorn projects? So the, the license fee begins at 0.1%, right? So it can be really small. When let's say in the negotiation, the, the part of the project is, is really small in the, in, the end, in the value chain, right? But I agree with you, it's mostly for projects who have a trademark, it's our logo or brand, well enough known to be also bankable, right? So when you put that logo on, on a conference, on your booth, like people say, oh, they use that, right? And I'm a user of that. So yeah, I should look at that. So I totally agree. It's not for the large majority of projects where the Tidyf model, even if you say that it's not working well enough, first it's made, right? They, because of the dependency graph and they fund everybody in the dependency, right? This is, but again, the money is, is captured by fewer projects and where the value is created. So also, I agree with- let me stop you for a second. Actually, I know Tidal very well and, and, um, I've been out to Boston to meet with them and they I've spent a lot of time talking to them and they don't they do not fund the entire tree. I just want to make yeah. that clear to everybody listening. They don't. They only fund specific projects that are very, very well known. And one of the issues that I have with the model is that it encourages um, so they calculate how they pay out based on lines of code. And this has been one of my issues with Tidelift is that basically people are encouraged to beef up the size of their projects by taking other people's code. And I've already seen them do it for Tidelift funding. Whereas on the other hand, I have a project called Micromatch that has three and a half million dependents on GitHub. I don't know what percent of GitHub projects that is, but that's, I haven't seen any other projects with that many dependents. Not one. I think it's got almost twice the number of dependents as, as uh, Babel. But I think Micromatch gets something like $30 a month from Tidelift, right? Yet it's almost a full job. It's almost a full-time job just managing Micromatch. So, so I guess my point is like, I don't see how that model really helps the projects that need the most help because the projects that, 
the projects that are favored in the model you're describing, the projects that can benefit from what you're describing, and the projects that get Tidelift funding are the ones who don't need it. Tidelift is funding projects that are already getting a ton of funding from much bigger sponsors. And they're getting, they're getting funding from, you know, take Happy. Happy's backed by, by Walmart. Why do they need Tide, Tidelift? I mean, and if Tidelift comes in after Walmart drops them, let's, let's just be honest about this for a second. Let's say Walmart drops a project or let's say, and it, Bootstrap was not backed by Twitter, but let's say they were just for sake of argument. Now, if Walmart drops a project and says, we're not going to back this anymore, why in the world would anybody come in and start funding it? Meaning Walmart made an economic decision, said this isn't worth us you know, funding anymore. Nobody else should fund it either. You should stop funding that project now because it's not worth funding. So I guess my point is, I think we have a real dichotomy here. The projects who need the funding the most and the projects who need this kind of thing the most are the ones who don't have the established brands, but are highly dependent on very technical, require a ton of time to work on, and just aren't trademarkable projects. So how do we fix that problem? How do we... And the reason I'm, I feel so strongly about this is I think that a lot of the emphasis and things like what you're saying are really focused on trying to get people to think more about how we can help projects that, are, that have these like, I, I would call them the very end of the supply chain, the last mile of the supply chain. They're like retailers who are just reselling things that everybody else built. And how do we get the funding and the mindset to start shifting towards the projects who really need it? Yeah. So uh, I, I I agree with you. This post at the end end of the end of the value chain project attracts the more value, and this is where all let's say people who wants to have economical, let's say um, cap wants to capture some economical value go right. So I, I agree with you on that. So for, for now, um, so the, I was mostly talking about tightly vision, right? I would not say it works it works yet, but the vision is mostly to find dependency code where application code could could have other models, right? Uh, at the end, right? So, but again, I'm not. I don't have any equity at Tidelift. I, I don't care. Just, but just to say. So, for the dependency code, we do the our fund the code thing, right? Which we just give money to maintainers because we don't have. We didn't find any any other thing. But there is another part of the maintainers contract that gives at least if you claim the maintainers contract, you and people pay you back something, right? They have the right to put themselves as official sustainer. So it's part in the contract. You can read below. And then they can, be, they can be officially a sustainer of the project, right? And so what we do for now, but we do that only with French big companies and French government right now. I'm originally French, right? And so this is why I have my network there, is that we ask them to put a maintainer's, uh, a sustainer's obligation, right? So we say, if projects you're using for this $1 million contract have a maintainer's contract live, you should be a sustainer of this project. Either you use it or not, either you, whatever, even there is no brand, right? Even there is no, you, you don't use the brand commercially, but because they claim to be maintainer's contract, you have to be sustainer of this project. So if you want to go through IT procurement and being able so we can buy your $1 million IT consulting, check all the projects, right? And be an official sustainer of these. Right? So that's part of the maintainer's contract, which is not trademark based, but that's the counterpart for the maintainer's let's say the, the dependency code that has no view and everything. So of course, at one point, you cannot do that for 3.5 million dependencies, but at least that give for some maintainers. Let's say I, I know maintainers in France who, has a, who is used by the whole video games industry, right? And its package is used by the whole video games industry. They, they, they save 40 to 50% of uh, CPU and GPU resources because of its package. It doesn't get money. So we're uh, evaluating with him the way to say, look, now if people work on this kind of project, 
And they have to be a fisher sustainer of my project. And so uh, in the contract, so, but now you need to educate the buyers. So we're educating the maintainers and the buyers. Say, look, check if every project that your IT consulting company or your vendor is using is actually sustainable. And so check the maintainer's contract and being able to, to define if they are official sustainers. So you get this sustainer badge when you pay for maintainer's contract. So that's the only way we've seen it's to put the buyer in the discussion. If the buyer is not in the discussion, it will, it will never happen. That makes sense. It's actually an initiative that Open Collective is pushing right now as well, where they want to make a badge available only to those that are, that are actually maintaining those projects. So I, I want to start winding down a little bit. We're, we're getting close to time. So one of the things that I think I read, now I, I apologize for not having this specifically, but I think I read somewhere in your documentation that those companies that do become supporters, as, as you said, they do have some right of the direction of the project. Did I read that wrong? Or is that, is that in there? Or is that not in there? Or am I just crazy? No, no. So I think it's not there because it's, really, it's, avo- it's to avoid that. It's, definitely, it's to avoid the sponsorship model where actually you, have a, you can say something and people have to comply because at some point you may lose your sponsorship, right? It's totally to avoid the sponsorship model. The idea is to be funded a little bit by a lot of people that are using you and making money thanks to you to be funded more than the majority for a small fee against only one or two with a bigger fee. I don't think it's there, but yeah. So this is exactly the way to, to avoid sponsorship, right? It's to, uh, to, have the, to have the community paying. And so you can be, you can be like independent, a lot more independent. You're always dependent of your end users, right? At, at some point. But you can be a lot more independent by only one or two few companies. And one, of, one project, I cannot name it, He's trying to join the Linux Foundation. He's currently hesitating between this maintenance contract, which is totally new and really risky, but he doesn't want this project to go in the Linux Foundation and to be like owned by more people, which is sponsor-driven, and that he may lose governance, right? It will probably at some point. So, so yeah, so this governance aspect, it's important, but you can still give a voice to your sustainers, right? You can make specific, listen specifically to them because they're, they are having directly economic uh, usage of your software. So to, to match your software with the economical impact of your software, you may have a specific voice for the sustainers, but it's not because they have a voice that they pay. They may have a voice if you decide to, but it's not related. And actually, we're trying to avoid it. One thing, if, if, we, if we close soon uh, in um, uh, the discussion, but I've talked a lot to Red Hat lawyers and actually the Red Hat uh, you know, uh, Enterprise uh, Linux edition, right? And CentOS is actually, so Red Hat being acquired officially like $33 billion, right? And what did the maintainers of, of Linux at some point had from this $33 billion? Yeah, you, 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 you can count on it, right? But again, Red Hat was delivering the red value and was securing some parts and making it trustworthy because of a brand, right? So the, actually the model of Treadmark, even for a, project, for a company like Red Hat, is, is exactly that because Red Hat RHEL is the Treadmark enforced version of the software of CentOS, for example. So the $33 billion value must be made by support, we agree, right? But even you can also match your support to your trademark policy. I don't say it's great, but just to say some company have worth $33 billion be having a, a trademark enforced project to protect the, their way to, to, uh, to maintain it, right? And to develop it. So just to say, I don't say it's the best model, just to say it has worked in the past. And this is why trademark is important. That's not been used uh, enough in the community. 
first off, I really appreciate you bringing this to the table. This is a fantastic conversation. This is something that I believe more people should be aware of. Where do we go from here? Let's say I have a project that's open source. I have gone through and thought, okay, well, this has brand recognition. Where do we go from here? How much does it cost? How do I get a trademark? How do I protect myself? How do I, how do I take myself from where I'm at now to, to, okay, I am now part of this system. And if my trademark is used, I will expect to be paid. So it's not directly expect to be paid, but at least you will engage a discussion with the people that, that are using your trademark. And so you will find a correct way to avoid confusion or to get paid, right? So that's the idea. So yeah, no, for now, uh, we're actually, the, the trademark contract is going in, v, in, in V1, like at the end of, uh, of July, right? So, and it will be a lot more public, right? It was just an opportunity to discuss it with you early. So you have a, a kind of uh, exclusivity there. And yes, and after uh, you can reach us or reach me at medi.maintainers.org. And we have some times where uh, we try to help you to maintain your project. When trademark is not the case, right? We find you other ways, right? We can invite you to our Fund the Code event, right? Or we can help you just like free advice, free consulting on the best way to try to monetize your project. And when a trademark applies, we will apply that, right? So, so reach, just reach us, mehdi at demaintainers.org. And so we'll begin the discussion about how we've helped others, how we're currently helping some of the project. But I was surprised by the fact that some project who had the opportunity to go to Linux Foundation were afraid of that, of that right? Because sometimes money, they can, they can be paid to maintain, right? Uh, but they're afraid to lose the governance of the project. So, so yeah, so just reach us and we will evaluate the case. We are not paid for that, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's benevolent work. So sometimes you'd have one week to wait to have a meeting. But, uh, and yes, so, and we have two hours and, and we begin the discussion about how, how to help. And sometimes it's not, there's no direct way we, we don't find. And yes, but at least the maintainers knows that if he does maintain his project, for now, it has to be uh, just, for, just for good and, and without, uh, uh, without retribution. Fantastic. Are there any other questions that we may have missed or anything that you'd like to share before we get to, our, get to the picks? A lot of this was over my head, which was awesome. Thank you so much for that. I learned a lot. So I have nothing else I really need to share, but I just wanted to say thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Agreed. Thank you. I think a lot of the topic and the reason I, I was uh, I wanted to ask you so many questions and get your feedback is I think that this is something that developers see all the time, they think about all the time, but they don't really get to listen to a lot of conversations about this kind of higher level, you know, meta management issues. So I really appreciate your thoughts and, and commentary. No, thank you very much for having me. Just say it's hard. There is no answer to all the questions yet. It's just one new way for specific projects to maintain. But when everybody will be educated, I hope the, they will ask sustainer badge when they buy a project and say, what's behind? Are you sustaining all the project that you're, I will give you $1 million dollar. I just want to know you sustain all the project that you're using. You give back something, either contribution, software contribution or money. Okay. And I think this is the big picture behind that. This is a big picture. But for now, we begin with what we can. So uh, trademark on project who has already some value around them. And I agree with you. It's not the large majority of project. Even the large majority of project doesn't have, even have a license. So we're, we really go from far. But maintainers should be aware of the economics behind the project. It's an important part of sustainability. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, let's uh, let's go to picks. So, for those listening uh, for the first time, picks are when we basically uh, decide a few things that we like, something that makes 
makes our life better, something maybe that we read, something maybe that we use, or, or anything that we want to share with people. So I'll go ahead and start because I have, uh, I've already listed mine out here. The first one I want to share is a blog post called Making Uncommon Knowledge Common. And it's the Richard Barton Playbook for Winning Markets Through Data Concept Loops. Richard Barton, if you don't know, is the founder of Zillow. He's the founder of multiple companies. What is it? Zillow, Expedia, Glassdoor, recently uh, launched a new product. Every one of these companies that he's built has become a billion-dollar company. And he uses the exact same methodology to grow each one of them. So it's a fantastic read. And then the other one I want to share, which is kind of a bitter share, is I, I have to applaud Superhuman's marketing efforts. Now, Superhuman is an email client. I run a small business code fund, and email is the lifeblood of my business. So making sure that I have, I'm on top of email is critical. Now, Superhuman appears to be an amazing product, super helpful for, for those who are running companies. But they've also followed the same pattern, the same dang pattern that Spark did when they launched, where you get on this list and, hey, you're behind 200 million people and you'll get there, but you got to share. And, and I've been invited by five or six people directly to get in and I still can't get in. So I applaud you, super, superhuman. You make me angry, but you make me love you more. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's go to Richard. <laughs> Thank you. My three picks are Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard. It's a pretty awesome play written by Chekhov sometime a very long time ago. I don't really know the details because I've been too busy learning the lines. I'll be performing it in Unadilla Theater in Central Vermont next week. So if you've ever wanted to come to Vermont and see Chekhov in a barn with cows around, it's very Vermont. You should come. That's the first pick. The second one is going to be the Chronicles of the Great Book of Amber by Richard Rogers Elizany. A friend of mine gave me this last week. I've already devoured 500 pages. I can't put it down. Absolutely fantastic fantasy epic involving everything you would want in an absolutely fantastic fantasy epic. And the final thing I want to share is David White's poetry. It's White, W-H-Y-T-E. Very helpful to me recently. He specializes in writing books about poetry in the workforce and how poetry is important and work as a pilgrimage that we all have to make. Um, and some of his books are just absolutely fantastic. Highly recommend. That's great. John, how about you? I'm going to actually switch directions a little bit with my picks, and I'm going to recommend uh, two books. My first book, uh, and actually this is two business books, not two programming books, and I was inspired by the, the conversation. So my first, my first pick, um, which many of you may have heard of, is a book called Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore, and that's about bringing a product to market. And so I'm thinking about a little different angle of what we're talking about today, but if you have something that you truly think you know, can find an audience and can find a user base this is like a must read for, a, uh, for entrepreneurs. And the second one that I also think is a, is a must read for entrepreneurs, and I haven't talked to many people that have read this book, but it's one of my favorites, is a book called The Profit Zone. The subtitle is How Strategic Business Design Will Lead You to Tomorrow's Profits. And so it kind of builds on the other, uh, the other topic. And this book is by um, Adrian Slywatsky and David Morrison and Bob Andelman. And the Profit Zone talks about lots of different profit models and how your business can monetize whatever it is that it's doing. Now, in some ways, it might seem, it, it was written something like 20 years ago, but it's, it's still as relevant today as it was then and uh, can, get, can teach you a lot about how to take something from the ground level and start thinking from the very first minute that you have an idea about how you can build a kind of a, a profit moat, a strategic moat around your business to, to, to build a profit. 
So those are my two picks. Fantastic. And uh, finally, Mehdi, do you have some picks? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the first one, what I what I found uh, uh, funny, it's uh, it's uh, how to write an unmaintainable code, right? It's a GitHub explanation about like how if you want to ensure your work for life, <laughs> uh, make the software unmaintainable, so you will be they will be obliged to have you there. It's really funny all the techniques to make your code unmaintainable uh, in a company, and I really love the counterpart of just to show how maintenance is important, right? Because the motto of the, the nonprofit, just to say it's innovation is overrated, maintenance often matters more, right? So this is, this is the main motto of the, of, of the nonprofit, the, the maintainers. No innovation without maintenance. Let's not forget that. And the second pick, I would say, is the Increment book, let's say, made by, you know, Stripe every month release a book on a specific topic. And they recently made an Increment book on open source, right? With a great contribution for open source influencers like Nadia Iqbal and others. And I really advise people to, to feel the, the state and the pulse of open source maintenance and sustainability is in that book. So yeah, I really advise to, uh, to go there. Fantastic. Mehdi, where can people find you online? They can find me on Twitter. It's Mejawi. My email is Mehdi at the maintainers.org. And I would be at OSCON. I make a, spe- I make a Ignite speech on, on maintainers versus uh, innovators. And uh, we have a maintenance conference in Washington, 6th to 9th of October, right? For people who can go, it's on the website. And yes, in any PIDES conference, I'm there because uh, I'm chairman of these and uh, so people can meet me, right? Fantastic. And for those that are listening, the Twitter account is M-E-D-J-A-W-I-I. And uh, this is fantastic. I look forward to seeing you at OSCON, actually. Okay, perfect. Uh, We'll wrap this up. Thank you all for listening. We are excited about the progress of this podcast. And as of recording right now, we haven't launched launched publicly, so we're all very excited to get this out. Mehdi, thank you so much for being on. You've been a fantastic guest. Uh, Very, very good information. And we will see you all next week. Thank you for having me. It was great discussion. Great questions. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.